And we're in chapter 3. And I'm going to pray and then read verses 22 to 42. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that your word would go out and have the effect that you desire the effect that you desire and the result that you wish to have upon those who may not know you and to those who do. We pray that your word accomplishes everything that you desire it to do. And so we pray now as we read that we will realize that uh, we are being ministered to by the Holy Spirit through your word. And we pray in abundance of, of his presence in our life. And that, Father, you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see and the heart to embrace these things that we read today. That, Father, they would draw us closer to you. And they would give us a sense of encouragement for those who are your children and for those who may not know you or are struggling with knowing you, we pray, Father, that you would make yourself very clear to them today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The focus is on, uh, will be upon verses 24 through 42, and I'll be bringing in the rest of the book I'm not going to be preaching on both sections, but because I want to, I'm preaching the next three weeks, I want to be able to finish uh, the book of Lamentations uh, in that series. <clears throat> so, something that we read last week, or last time, is verse 22, and that is very familiar to all of us. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, my, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the, to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken it, it came to pass, unless the Lord, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. 
we have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Now remember the book of Lamentations is a series of five poems uh, written by a poet, which uh, many believe is Jeremiah, and the time of the writing is the time of the fall and the destruction and everything uh, that makes Israel Israel except their God to be decimated, to be destroyed. And so this weeping prophet, as Jeremiah has been known uh, to be called and is described to be called that way, is, is uh, teaching us what it is like to bring something called a lament, which is throughout the Bible. Over 50 psalms, almost 60 psalms, maybe more. Uh, Job, uh, throughout the, uh, the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, even Jesus laments. And lamenting is a, a, a process of prayer, starting from protest, presenting protest and complaint, leading to and ending up to trusting in God. God wants us to bring those confusions, those perplexities, those times when we don't understand what's going on. One, as I mentioned before, vertigo, when things just don't seem in balance, when things seem to be spiraling and you can't be making heads or tails, and, and what you think about this and what you think about that, about your situation, and as you're, if you're a believer and you think about who God is and you realize that this is not good, how does that jive? How, how do I bring that before God in a reverent way? How can I present that to God in a way that God accepts it? And we read that He desires us. It's a, it's a, it's a prayer that He accepts, a lament. A place of pouring our, out, our hearts out to him. And so Jeremiah is teaching the people of God and those who may read this and do not know God as an, an evangelist, bring, reaching out to them and saying, this is what happens when you do not trust God in his word. Because this is who God said he is. And this is what God said would happen when you fail to live up to the covenant I made with you. That something was going to terribly happen to you, and it has. And we read the terrible things that chapter 1 and 2 talk about from a, a lady, the lady of, of Jerusalem or the lady of Zion, a personification, uh, to be able to bring it into, into frame for us as people about someone suffering. And then chapter 2 was an observer and responding or reporting to what was going on around him and responding to that. And then we looked in chapter 3 as we saw chapter 3. And chapter 3 says at the very beginning, verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the wrath of God. So we see that now that uh, the poet, Jeremiah, is now saying, this is how I feel about this God. I knew I know all this stuff is coming, but it's just overwhelming for me to see people starving, to watch children die 
of starvation, of thirst, of watching mothers cooking their children because they're so hungry they need to eat. To see this, he says, I'm just having a hard time with all of this. Even though, as we have read in the book, in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and we've read in in, um, Deuteronomy, that this is, was going to happen. God said this was going to happen. And so what thing we, can we take from this is that God is a God who means it when he says it. That means his blessings and that means his curses as well. His wheel, meaning that the, the good thing, the blessings of God, or some people, and the woes, those things that, as you see, you know, the curses, those things that are not very good. And throughout the Old Testament, you can read it, especially if you read, you know, uh, and you read Isaiah, all the, 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 the woes to all the nations of all the people that have attacked uh, Israel and have done terrible things to them and conquered them and chewed them up and spit them out and used them for what they could. But Israel capitulated. Israel didn't think that God could do everything that he said he was going to do, so he be- they become... Uh, friends, they become allies. They even, as in the, in the book of Exodus, God tells them, in Deuteronomy, he tells them, you can see this in, in Isaiah, he says to them, don't do anything with Egypt. Don't buy horses with Egypt. Don't do anything with their wives in Egypt. Don't find wives in Egypt. And what do they do? Solomon goes back and starts making all these alliances again. Right? In the heyday. In the heyday, in the, high, the prosperity of Israel. We see that this is now chapter 3. This is the poet. This is Jeremiah's gut. And that's what it is when we lament. We bring our guts to God. It's that raw. We bring every visceral feeling we can bring to God and bring it before him as children bring it to their parents. They let it all hang out. All the snot comes out. It all just comes. And that's what God wants us to bring to him. From a, from a perspective, as I told you before, from a technical perspective, this, uh, these, these chapters in the book of, of, of Lamentations are acrostics, so that means that every verse has a letter of the alphabet. That's why you see 22 verses in chapter 1, 2, 4, and 5. It is from A to Z, so to speak, meaning that there's nothing missing. You're getting it all. Chapter 3 is tripled, meaning that there are three verses with the same letter. A, 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 B, 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 C, 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 from an English alphabet. God has given this through Jeremiah. Not, Not only that they would gain knowledge... Not only that they would get information, this, this isn't a historical account, though it is, but this is poetry. This is not just an historical account. This is God giving them something that would give them the ability to smell and taste and feel of what it was like. That's why nothing is held back. It's not like going, going to a museum in any great city or anyone, any museum around here and walking in it and reading the little signs or putting on the headphones and having somebody lecture to you and saying, oh, well, this, 
this uh, portrait was this, and this artifact was this. It's not about gaining knowledge. It's like going back to the 9-11 Museum. It's like going back to the Holocaust Museum, which I've never been to in Washington. It's going back so you can smell it and taste it and feel it and see the horror of the pictures and see the, 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 the very artifacts of what happened and the, the, the twisted metal. And for those of us who were around in, in, in the, uh, that time and remember what it was all about and were close by, and even for me, going down, being able to go down only days after the 9-11 happened and to be able to see the smoke coming from it and be able to smell the smells and be able to look at people with their eyes this big walking around like zombies and doing nothing. This is the city of New York doing nothing but look walking around numb. Where there's noise, you hear nothing. It's silence other than crying. This is what this is about. This gives us something to be attached to. This is what he did, he's done for us and he's done for those who are going to read this. We believe that Jeremiah wrote this right around the time, right after it happened, 587, 586 B.C. And so this is where we find ourselves. And how, how it's, uh, uh, this book is so poignant and so real is listen to again verse 16, 17, and 18 of chapter 3. Notice how honest he is. He has made my teeth grind on the gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. Boy, cannot we, can't we relate to that at times in our life when we have just been hammered and it's just not in a you know we may be in the shock but it's this long protracted dealing with something that God has allowed to go on in your life that some days you wake up and you're so tired of it you just forget what it feels like to be happy so I say my endurance has perished so has my hope from the Lord. Now remember, this book is directed at the nation of Israel. And they have sinned. And, and this is very, very obvious, and, has, and Jeremiah has been extremely honest about that and saying, we are the ones who have sinned. We deserve this. God said this was going to happen. This is why this calamity, this devastation, this horror has come upon them. We can't say that everything that happens in our life is based upon our disobedience. Now, ultimately, it is about the fall. Ultimately, it is about the separation that we have with God based upon what happened in Genesis 3 when the relationship between man and God was separated and alienated and then alienated from everything that he's created and then the alienation even one another an alienation between 
who you see in the mirror and what's going on in your head. And so everything that we deal with, and I don't, and I'm kind of try to make you realize this, I'm not saying to make this one for one, saying that just because you're suffering right now, whatever that means, or are continuing to suffer over things that have happened in the past, or through the loss of a loved one, or a fracture of a relationship, or the devastation of what has happened in this church, or churches in your past, or the dealing with a disease, or dealing with whatever, the loss of money, the loss of your job, the loss of whatever. I'm not saying it's direct correlation, and neither is the Bible, neither is God saying that because you've done something, you must have done something wrong. Thank you, Job's friends. That's not what God says. Maybe sometimes there are things in our life that happen to us because we have sinned. Or certainly somebody has sinned against us and we're feeling that way. Or it can just be the natural flow of life. Struggling with getting older. And struggling with our bodies not being the same. And struggling with our minds not working the way that they worked. And watching loved ones die all around us, even children. So what he is saying here is that let's not, when it talks about this, we don't want to go too far about saying that God is talking about this because they are suffering because they're sinners. Israel is. This is historical. That's for a fact. We've got to make sure we understand that. But this book is useful for us for all the situations that we find ourselves that cause us to feel the way that, I, uh, that uh, Jeremiah is feeling. He says in verse 20, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me, in me. But now verse 21 marks a transition. The word but. But this, and that's what the, the title of the sermon is, but this I, will call, I call to mind, and the word mind there is heart. This is what I'm going to remember in my heart. This is all still happening. And remember, in the midst of all, everything he's watching, this is now rising up in his heart. This is now he's calling to mind. This is what he's desiring to do. God's given him the grace to remember this. And so this is what I've called to mind. This is what I am remembering. Because, he says, therefore, I can have that hope. And then we read, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, my soul. Says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And as I was reading uh, and working on this, the words of one of our favorite hymns, Trust and Obey, kind of got me thinking a little bit here where it says, uh, Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear. Evidently, he didn't read Lamentations. Now, I understand where they're coming from in his hymn writers, but, I mean, really, this is counter of what we, this is just counter to who we are and how we can act at times and how our lives, we find ourselves in our lives. 
So what is it that he began to hope? What is it that he began this to think about? And it was this steadfast love, this kessed love, the Hebrew word, this ongoing covenantal love of God that he made way back with Abraham, that he made way back in Genesis 3, that God said to Abraham, somehow, some way, he knows how, but he, Abraham, somehow, some way in his mind, that God was going to bless the world through him and his descendants. And he made a covenant with Abraham, and in fact, chapter 17, what happens? Abraham goes to sleep, and he wakes, and in his sleep, that, that flaming torch goes between the sacrifices, and, and what does God say? He says, I swear to myself, meaning that how much higher can God swear but to himself that he promises that everything that he promises will come to pass, and never will he forsake us? Or as I have mentioned in uh, Exodus chapter 36, I'm sorry, 34, which is really, I think, one of the most pivotal passages that you can know in the Bible, because it, it's important. If you're going to remember something in your life, if you're going to remind yourself in your heart, when you're going to be able to do this, as he's saying, you need to do this all the time. You need to rehearse this through your, in your mind. You need to go through it like you do a fire drill. You need to do this whatever you do. In any case, you find yourself in serious trouble. You need to rehearse this and realize that when you come to this place, that this is where you need to go. And your mind needs to be reminded. Reminded of what? Well, he's talking about the steadfast love, the mercies of the Lord, his faithfulness. So we go back to chapter 34 of the book of Exodus, which I talked about briefly last time. But it is mentioned over 20 times in the Bible. It's important. It is one of the bedrock doctrines, the bedrock verses and passages that you need to have in your heart. As I've mentioned to you, Romans 8. Because there Paul says, we know. Therefore, I am convinced these are convictions. This is what Jeremiah is doing. He is so convicted, and he knows who God is, and he knows that God is God all the time, and God can't stop being God. But sometimes, when we find ourselves in those places, we think God has stopped being God. And so he says in verse 6 of Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, which is his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Now, anger is not an attribute of God. God is a God. God is love, okay? God is love. God is not anger. But God is anger when he responds in justice towards sin. It's a response to the justice of God. God becomes angry at sin. God is not, his attribute and his character is not anger. But he is a God who gets angry. But he says here, he is a God who is gracious. It is a God who is merciful. But he is slow to anger. But he will get angry. 
And he's abounding in that steadfast covenant love. You see, they go, it has to go back to the covenant because the covenant is not about you and me. The covenant is what God has made with us. I've promised to do this for you. I know you're not going to be good at it. I know you're not going to be perfect at it. I know you're going to fail miserably, but I'm going to make a covenant with you that is guaranteeing your security in my heart. That's why I say to you many times, God can't love you any more than he loves you now. Why? Because Jesus has paid the price. Jesus has completely, covenantally been perfect. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what Jeremiah is holding on to. This promise of God explaining his character, giving you his attributes. But, that word but, right? It's in changes it's an adverse thing it changes the flow but it says that because he forgives sins and because he's merciful and before and because he is, is uh, has steadfast love and compassion and is slow to anger he does get angry and it says here who but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of fathers and children and children children to the third and the fourth generation He's going to bless thousands, but there's going to be a portion of people that are not going to be blessed by God. That's the characteristic of who God is. This is where Jeremiah is hanging on to. Remember Psalm 139, talking about God's omniscience, God all-knowing, God being ever-present. God's power is all power. This is who God is. We have to say this is who God is and he's not going to change. And notice in verse uh, 24 he says, the Lord is my portion of says my soul, therefore I will have hope in him. The word portion is really talking about inheritance. That's what he's talking about. It's the word for inheritance. The Lord is the portion of everything in my life. Inheritance meant everything. It comes to us, remember in the book of Numbers, remember the Levites didn't have any land. And what did they say? The Lord, what was in that, ver in that, in that passage when he was talking about the Levites, he says the Levites aren't going to get any land because the Lord is your portion. There's nothing for the Levites to go back to. They depended upon the congregation to live. And so he says, the rest of your life is taken care of. Your inheritance is secure. Because my soul says it is. And therefore, I can have hope. Because if God is God, if we get to the end of our rope and find out we have nothing left but Jesus, then Jesus is all that we need. Now that's easy to smile at. I'd rather have Jesus then everything we sing. But is it true? Do we act like it? And then everything, our loved ones, our children, our bodies, our minds, 
our finances, everything? We'd rather have Jesus? Well, we know what that's, that hymn means. But here he's saying, here is Jeremiah, and he's got nothing. And he says, I understand what it means now. The Lord is my portion. If I know that someone is going to give me a million dollars right now, why do I need to be concerned about when I hit 66 next month? Right? Why would I need to think about who's, how's going to be taking care of Susie? Why do I need to think about have, working at a job that I don't want to be at anymore? Why would I need to be concerned? Why would they be a burden? Because my portion has been taken care of. And that's what he is saying here. We need to translate that, and we need to do that together, because we need each other to remind each other that it isn't always going to work out that way. But what will happen is that God will never leave us nor forsake us, and that's what Jesus said, and Jesus says, I am everything to you. Where else can we go? He is our portion. So we see this great change in this, this starting in the pits. In chapter 1, we're, we've been, we've been, it's been pretty ugly. But all of a sudden, we've gone to this place because the word butted here, and he goes, I'm calling to mind in, in the midst of this crisis that you, love are the, you, Lord, are the love of my life. You are the God who promises to be faithful in spite of all of this unfaithfulness. And remember that there are those who are receiving this judicial condemnation from God. This is it for them in Israel. They have not obeyed God. They have not believed God. This talks about the priests. This talks about the elders. This talks about the people. There are people in the midst of here who have not Want, or the kings have not wanted to obey God at all. And we can read Chronicles and Kings and read how despicable kings were and how small the godly kings were. And so we see here that it is not about only about God acting as a God who condemns everybody. He does. But not in here. He's not talking about receiving this because we are condemned he is talking about in the midst of here are people who have sinned and disobeyed God and they will never find this peace. They will never feel this steadfast love. They will never get it that God is a God who's gracious, merciful, and forgives sins because they never cared about him in the beginning. Israel is now finding out who they've really been this whole time, a disobedient, disobedient group of people. But in the midst... We've been promised a remnant. We've been promised God's possession, a treasured possession, God's people, God's elect, God's chosen people. Not the nation of Israel, but the people that were in Israel, because we've read in there that not everyone who calls themselves a Jew is a Jew, Paul writes. And not everybody who says they're Israel are from Israel. Even though they look like it, they go through the rituals, they say it, they speak Hebrew, they know the Torah and everything, that doesn't mean they're believers. That's the same thing with us being Christians. Just because you're sitting here, just because you carry a Bible, just because you go to church and you've been baptized and all this other stuff, doesn't mean that your salvation is secure unless you truly believe 
in Jesus. So on the other side of this, this judicial condemnation is this fatherly anger who disciplines his children. And we see that in chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews. In chapter 12 of Hebrews, he says here, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Now, realize this is what's going to go on and guide our thinking as we read the rest, as we go through the, those other verses that I read today. He says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, hostility against him, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, found in Proverbs chapter 3? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Spoil the rod, spoil the child, as Proverbs tells us. If there is no discipline from God's people, then you are not God's people. It's not that you're getting away with it. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Discipline, not just being, not being scolded, but discipline, being schooled, being taught going through the learning process. What discipline of studies are you taking? That's not bad. That's just describing what you're being schooled in. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? There are people who raise their kids who never say no. That's where... Uh, God goes after, goes after David and says, some of your kids, you've never said no to. That's why they're brats, David. That's why they're wanting to kill you. That's why, because you've given them everything they've wanted, and now they're after your hide. If you, left without, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we've respected them. So shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to us, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. God's discipline is to make us holy to make us more like Jesus. And what he uses to discipline us can be anything that he desires to come through his fingers into our life. And everything that he allows to come through our life, as bad as they are, Romans 8 tells us, God uses them for good. But yet it's very difficult as we're reading these horrific things going on here, how, why, you know, to that extreme, God? Do you really need to go that far? Is, is, that, is that, you have to do this? Are you right in what you're doing? 
For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, when we're not going through suffering, that sounds like, amen, that sounds great, doesn't it? We can just go right along with it and saying, wow, that makes all the sense. I can see that. But when you're in the dark providence of God, when God is disciplining you and me, when God is making us holy through anything and everything that he brings forth, as Jeremiah tells us, it, uh, it's very hard to read that passage. You try to find comfort in it. But after you know an hour or two, it's okay, but days and weeks. And you know what? It never goes away. The discipline of God just that he's using doesn't go away and doesn't bring back a loved one and doesn't cure that disease and doesn't restore that relationship or no one's going to give me a half a million dollars or a million dollars for my inheritance. So this is where, this is where Jeremiah is and he says here, as we're looking at quickly these last few, these last verses of that we have talked, I was, uh, have read to you as he says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The, word, the letter here is the letter T in the alphabet that they're using, in the acrostic, and the word they're using here in the beginning of every verse in verse 25, 26, and 27, is the Hebrew word tov, meaning good. So, it is, so what this means literally, good is the Lord to those who wait for him. Good it is that one should wait quietly. Good it is for a man that he bear. Now, it is good for those who wait for the Lord to those who seek him. Seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly. Well, Jeremiah has been anything but quiet, right? Anything but quiet. He's been spewing his guts out, bringing it to the Lord and bringing as graphic as possible. Is that what he means? And the answer is no, he doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean that you don't bring what Jeremiah is bringing. You don't lament to God because the Bible's full of it. What he is telling us here is that you don't take things into your own hands. You don't, things that, don't do things that you think you should, like Abraham throwing his wife under the bus a couple times, or them thinking it's okay to go with Hagar because God's been a little bit slow. It's almost 25 years. It's, it's been many years here, God. I'm ancient. I'm supposed to have a child. Look at the two of us. This is where he's saying wait patiently. And that's what it says, what it means in, um, uh, in chapter 9 of, of the book of Hebrews. It says those who, God's going to bring salvation to those who wait eagerly. Isn't that a, a cool way? Waiting eagerly for the Lord. I don't know how, I'm not a good waiter. Susie tell you that about people when I go into restaurants and I feel like I'm being gypped on my time. When I feel that somebody has forgotten us in the corner. And I feel like, again, this is the curse of the Mambino. It only, always happens to me when I go into a restaurant. Where are you? You've been here. We should get this food for nothing. We've been here for half an hour. I haven't seen your mug in how long? 
I don't wait. There are things I can wait for, but there are things that I can't because I just think it's a waste of time. And that's what we think sometimes when we're waiting upon God, when God doesn't seem to answer us at all. This is what he says in verse 43. Look at what he says in verse 43. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing us without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no, pa- no prayer can pass through. This is what he feels God has done. God has answered. He hasn't said no. Maybe he has. That's an answer. But God hasn't answered the way that we wanted to or haven't, hasn't responded for years Joseph's prayer in prison, Abraham's prayer for a child, Daniel's prayer for salvation. He's not saying not do anything. He's not saying just to sit there and wait, but to wait eagerly. Don't say things that you regret. Wait in silence. If you're going to wait and you're going to bring this before the Lord, then do it within the rubric, the umbrella, the framework of biblical language in the way that God will accept it. For it is good for a man, verse 27, that he bear that yoke, the yoke of waiting, silently waiting upon the Lord. And a yoke does not mean In in context, it does mean what? It means burden. It means bondage. When you yoke animals together. But Jesus says, come to me. What? For my burden is easy. My yoke is light. When we find ourselves grouped together, when we find ourselves yoked with Christ, it's a completely different type of servanthood. It's a completely different type of guidance in life. When you're being whipped because you're an ox being a a beast of burden on a yoke, it's very different than someone lovingly you, guiding you through life. And that's the yoke that he's talking about here. The yoke of waiting upon the steadfast love of God. And he said, it's good that you learn it as young as you can because life is full of it. Let him sit in silence, verse 28, when it is laid upon him. What? What is it? The yoke. Let him sit in silence. Let him sit alone in silence when the yoke is laid upon him. Let him put his mouth in the dust, meaning accept it. If someone steals your coat, what does God say? When someone slaps you in the face, what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't retaliate. Don't do something. Don't respond to what's going on in your life because it will lead to evil. It'll lead to do something that you regret. He says, so take it. Let him put his mouth in the dust. That doesn't sound very enticing, does it? doesn't sound very appetizing, but that's what he says, even if it means that. And let him be filled with insults. Why? Well, verse 31, 32, and 33 is, is, the, is the letter K. And there's a word, key, which means for. And all these, ex- ESV doesn't translate it. It puts a button in there. 
but it's for. Verse 31, why, why, why do we submit to this? For the Lord will not cast off forever. For the, though he caused grief, here's the sovereignty of God, he will have compassion according to the abundance of that steadfast love that he's proclaimed throughout the Bible and has been certainly magnified and given to us in living color in Christ with his death upon the cross. For he, for, why? There's a third reason. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. What does that mean? It says, for he does not do that from his heart. Literally what it means. Which means this. I, when I disciplined my children, I certainly tried to be holy about it. But I can't tell you how many times I failed in being holy about disciplining my children. There were times when I, you deserve this. You've disobeyed me. How dare you disobey the king? I rule the world in this house. How could you be so stupid to do this? That's my nature. But that's not God's nature. That's not God's heart. Here's a book I've told you about. None greater the undomesticated attributes of God. I may do this in a series talking about who God is because it makes a big difference when we understand who God is about the God that we love and who we, what we expect about God. I mean, we can't you know, go to Price Chopper and buy a car. And we may be extremely disappointed when we go there and we don't find a car for sale. And we may think things about God that aren't true. This is what this man says. He says, uh, <clears throat> God has been described throughout church history as impassable, as one who is without passions. Our God is by nature incapable of suffering, which would be a good discussion to have with that not. And he is unsusceptible to emotional fluctuation. Rather, we worship a God who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. Never is there any action by God that is out of line with his unchanging character. Instead of being divided by emotional states or overcome by sudden, unexpected moods, moods that reveal just how vulnerable and dependent he is on what we do. The God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. He is never at odds with himself, divided over conflicting expressions of his perfections. No, this God is an impassable God. You see how important it is to understand that that's, we, God is not a God who just is, I've had a bad day, and now you're going to get it. He's never, he is not run by his emotions. He's a God of perfection. 
And so this is where he means that he does not willingly afflict us. God is not a God of anger. He is an angry God, but that's not who he is. He is a God of love, God of compassion, a God of mercy. And he does this because he has to respond to sin and disobedience. This is how we act, verse 34, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, or to deny a man justice even before the presence of God, or to subvert a man in a lawsuit the Lord does not approve. This is how we do it. That's how we act. We're willy-nilly in our emotions and how we think. We can be rational and irrational. Irrational. And then he says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is, not, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that, God, that good and bad come? Very hard for people to think that God would bring bad things to us or allow bad things to come to us. But it's throughout the Bible. They're evil, they're bad. God brings good, God brings evil. What he does with them is completely different. But then themselves, as we read of the horrific things that are going on in Jeremiah, as he reports it in Lamentations, those are horrific. Notice here at the end, he says in verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let, this is an evangelistic, I think, plea. Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. What? You have not forgiven? Well, there are people in the midst of here that have not been forgiven because they've never asked God to forgive them. And there are people who may be here today, who are listening today, have never been forgiven because they've never asked God for forgiveness. And so you can't get forgiveness unless you ask for forgiveness. God is faithful and just and will purify you and forgive you from all unrighteousness if we confess. And the, and the Bible tells us that we, miss, we must come to Christ. We must forgive others in Christ as we have been forgiven in Christ. But how did we go to Christ? We went, Jesus, forgive me. We didn't just say, I know, I screwed up, I messed up. Jesus says, don't worry about a thing. It's okay. That's not how he works. These people aren't forgiven because they haven't, been, they haven't asked for forgiveness. This doesn't mean everybody. There are people within who are going to read this and who are suffering here that God allowed to live that they have not been believers and they are still not believers. And so God is reaching out to them. Why? Because he's a merciful, compassionate God who has reached out from the very beginning of the fall so that he could redeem a people for himself. And in spite of all this is going on, notice how Jeremiah does this. Je Jeremiah still believes everything that happens around him is not good. But he believes in a God who is good all the time. And so what does he say? That doesn't stop me from crying out to God. Because when, I've said this before, when we have a problem with somebody, we sometimes stop talking to them. 
When we start shouting at each other, it's not good, but at least we're communicating. Jeremiah is saying it's so important to keep on praying to God. Like that widow who was so persistent, banging on the door to that evil judge because she knew that there was nobody else who was going to take care of him but her, for her, but her, for, her for him. Or that, that neighbor or that friend who came to the door and said, I got a friend, I need three loaves of bread. He goes, leave me alone, my family's sleeping on the floor. I got to step all over top of me and open the door. Why don't you go away? He says, that guy's going to keep on knocking because that's where I need to go to get what I need. So Jeremiah says this, verse 49, my eyes will flow without ceasing. I will continue to pray without ceasing until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. Not that God can't see. It's that he knows he's seeing. He needs to remind himself that God is seeing. I've been hunted like a bird by those who are my enemies without cause. They flung me into a pit and cast stones on me. Now we see the personal nature of, of Jeremiah again. Word it closed over my head and I said I was lost. I called upon your name, Lord, and from the depths of the pit you heard my plea. He's going back to history in his life and he says, he does it. He does answer prayer. I know he answers prayer. He's done it in my life before. Jeremiah 38, what happens? Jeremiah's thrown into a pit. Remember, it's not full of water, but it's full of mud. It's enough mud in there so that he could sink, and he can't lay down or he'd die. He just felt like the water was, like he said here, I would suffocate. He goes, I, wasn't, I was in a pit. I couldn't, I couldn't live anymore. But you, God, you answered my prayer and took me out of that pit. They, uh, Paul writes in first, 2 Corinthians, he goes, I thought, I was so fearful that I thought we were dead. He goes, I just thought we were dead, but Jesus, but God, he, he, he rescued us. And we believe not only that rescue, but that he's going to redeem us and save us ultimately in the end. And that's what it's all about, is what do we believe about God? Do we believe that God is going to save us in the end? Then he says, I've taken care of the worst thing that can happen to you in your life. The worst thing that can happen to you. He says, realize that your sins have separated you from me. And if you die separated from me, then that's the worst thing that could ever happen to you in your existence. You may suffer now. Some of us are going to, when some of us have, internally, externally, through all different avenues of life, suffered and some of us will continue to suffer until the lord takes us but our eyes can't be upon the suffering and this is not easy to say because i think about suffering a lot because i'm a pastor and i think about your suffering on top of my suffering and my children's suffering and how they foment to me how they spew the terrible things going on in their life. And I wonder, Lord, will it ever come to an end? Will you ever heal them? Will you ever restore them? Will you ever change their heart that they stop hating you and love you? 
And I have to go back to my closet and say, but the Lord is a Lord of love, the steadfast love that endures forever. He will never cast us off forever. In closing, we look at 1 Peter chapter 2. He says in verse 20, 19, excuse me, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Then this is where he's talking about doing the right thing and still being suffering when he's talking, when Peter's talking to the people who are suffering and persecuted. But the, the, the principle is still the same. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his step. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continuing, continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's the Father. That's God. And then he says in chapter 5 this. Verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting your, all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The only way, he says here, is that we're going to find this humbleness is by casting. When we cast all of our anxieties upon God, then we are humbling ourselves before the capable, loving hands of God. And that's what Jeremiah is going to continue to do through this horrific period. Because you know what, folks? You can read chapter 4 next week. The title of my sermon is, It's Monday. It's reality. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your words will fall upon us today as painful as they may sound, but also, Lord, how joyfully they sound in our ears. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us in the way that we live our lives that is supposed to be pleasing in your sight. We pray, Father, as... We read in the epistles that because of your great mercies, we now live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And this is what Jeremiah is doing for us, Lord. This is what this poet is writing. 
this poetry, this very frank and open and real poetry. And Father, in the midst of this, he finds a taste of heaven. And your word tells us, and even in Jeremiah's writing in Lamentations, and we read it in the New Testament, that when we pray, you draw near to us. That you visit us in a way that is special and mystical and spiritual. You visit us in a way that is so different than any other experience on life. To have you draw near to us. And that's what Jeremiah is pleading you for. And he tastes in the midst of this dark providence. You taste it. And so, Lord, I pray that we have been blessed again by a lamentation. That, Lord, this book that rarely gets attention will now be one that will be seen differently and that we will not hurriedly go through it, but that we will find ourselves meditate on it very often. And we thank you, Jesus, that you took all of the pain of hell upon yourself, that you took all of our suffering, you took all, all of God's wrath, upon yourself so that we would not feel his wrath that we would not be condemned that's why we can say that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in christ lord we pray that we would read jeremiah's book realizing that father this is all to teach us to be holy this is teaching us to trust in who you are in our lives. And that, Lord, that is, it will teach us soon that it takes a community. You have desired a community to do this. A community is devastated. Lord, you talk about how let us bring these together, the pain and the suffering. Let us join side by side those who are in need. So that, Lord, when we find ourselves in need, we will find others coming closer to us and holding us up because that is a blessing from you so lord we pray that your spirit would work in these words today and we pray it in jesus name amen